Hello, and welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it comes from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. This week is Jean Astra. So I mentioned in the last episode that the argument between Simon and Leclerc brought some of the fringe ideas into the mainstream. Well, Ostrich is going to take this a step further and really set Old Testament criticism on a trajectory that it is honestly still following to this day. So to start with his life, Jean Ostrich was born in 1684 in Suave, France. His father, Pierre, was a minister of the Reformed Church in Agrimont, which is a nearby town, but his broader family, the Ostruck family, were Jews in Spain and southern France. So somewhere along the line, his more immediate family had converted to Protestantism. Well, the Protestant Huguenots began to be persecuted during Jean Ostruck's childhood, and his father was sentenced to death in absentia in 1684, and an effigy was executed in his stead. Yes, that is the same year that Jean Astruc was born. Then in 1685, his father was arrested, but pardoned on the condition that he converted to Catholicism. His cousin, Jacques Astruc, whom he had studied theology with when he was uh, younger, before he had joined the Reformed Church, his cousin was forced into exile by the persecution. So keeping in mind that all of this was happening in the first few years of John's life. So his father, probably smartly, converted to Catholicism, and then he worked as a lawyer and received a pension. He, I think, made a wise choice for his family there. Anyways, he converted to Catholicism, and later in 1703 to 1704, Pierre was hunted by the Huguenots and fled to Montpellier because they were going after all the people who had turned their backs on the Protestant church during the persecution earlier. So, he got away, things were pardoned, he continued his practice even after that, his father, I mean. So his father was known to have quite an extensive library and was very good at languages and especially Hebrew. So Jean Ostrach did not get his academic skills from thin air, and he owed much to his father and was very open about his respect and admiration for his father, even in many of his writings where he even wrote the history of his own family. It also does help that his father was his teacher for most of his childhood until he went on to more university studies. So, Jean studied at Montpellier and received the degree of Magister Atrium in 1700 and decided to go into medicine. 
1702, he received his license, and in 1703, at age 18, he got his doctorate. Things went a lot quicker back then. If you think that that is a ridiculous time frame, uh, doctorates were far less time in school than they are now. So even though 18 was really young, early 20s to get your terminal degree was not unheard of. Also keeping in mind that high school and middle school and all of those grades were much shorter. Most people not going to school till they're 18, unlike today. Anyways, from 1706 to 1709, he accompanied the Duke of Orleans to the Spanish War of Succession and gave anatomy lectures while he was doing this. He was then a professor of anatomy at Toulouse from 1710 to 1711 and finally moved to Montpellier to work with his former teacher, Pierre Chirac. He received a chaired position at that school and stayed there until 1728. In 1720, though, the king granted him a pension and in 1721 put him in charge of the mineral water plans of Languedoc. I don't speak French, so I probably butchered that, but that is the name of the city. And in 1728, he went to Paris, and then King August II of Poland invited him to work as his personal physician. He was only there a short while and moved back to Paris in 1730, so just a couple years, to be Louis XV's personal physician. A year later, he became professor of medicine at the Royal College of France, and then in 1743, he was elected as a member of the medical faculty of the Sorbonne. John Astrick died in 1766 while working on a textbook on obstetrics that was requested by the Parisian medical faculty, who also requested that he teach a course on it. So that is the primarily medical life of Ostrak. However, he also wrote on history, including of his own family, the Bible, and theology, as well as many medical articles and books. So we'll be discussing his Old Testament writings in the next section, but it is safe to say that this writing, the Old Testament ones, have been at least as influential, if not more influential, than his medical work was. So, before we get into his writings, let's take a break. to talk about was written anonymously in French 
1753. But everyone pretty quickly figured out that it was Astruc. I won't butcher the French name this time because it is a really long name, but the translation into English, which is the title of the English versions of it, is Conjectures on the Original Documents that Moses appears to have used in composing the book of Genesis with remarks that support or throw light upon these conjectures. It is also commonly just shortened to the conjectures in current literature. So, Ostruck is specifically writing in response to Hobbes, Spinoza, La Perere, Simon, and Leclerc. He actually mentions all of these individuals by name, and a few others. He explicitly tells the reader that he is trying to use 18th century methods to undermine the suspicions of the 17th century. He wants to maintain orthodoxy, unlike many of these earlier writers, and as you might have noticed in the title of the book, he deals explicitly with Genesis. So let's first follow the outline of his argument. His first issue is that Moses did not experience the events of Genesis and Exodus 1-2. This is obvious to anyone even vaguely familiar with it. Genesis is the history from creation to the patriarchs. The last patriarch, according to the text, lived about 400 years before Moses. Remember the sojourn in Egypt when they were enslaved? It was about 400 years. So the patriarchs went down to Egypt, people were enslaved for 400 years, and then Moses led them out in the Exodus. So did Moses experience these events that were 400 plus years before his lifetime? Of course not. He didn't make the claim to be there at creation or to meet Abraham and Sarah. So Moses did not experience the events of Genesis. Seems simple enough. As a side note, I am going to refer to his topic as Genesis, even though it does include the first two chapters of Exodus, which ends with Moses' birth. The same theory is at work in both, because Moses clearly would not have first-hand memory of his birth, but I'm saying this just for convenience. Genesis also includes Exodus 1-2 in this study, and I just want to say it more simple in an audio podcast. So back to Ostrak. According to Ostrak, he either received the information through revelation or other reports. Again, these are pretty obvious options for Moses. God could have told him all this history through special divine revelation, or Moses could have done his homework and studied up on ancient history. Well, the text doesn't mention divine revelation, so Ostrak believes he must have gotten his info from earlier accounts. Personally, I think this argument from silence is problematic. Just because Moses doesn't mention divine revelation doesn't mean that he didn't have one. Maybe he just didn't think it was necessary to mention. Or maybe he thought it was so obvious that it was commonly understood to be a direct message from God. I don't know. I mean, the events at Sinai were a direct revelation, and he never said that Genesis is excluded from the receipt of the law on Sinai. My point is just to say, I think Astruck writes off this option way too quickly. 
personal opinion, back to Astra. Since this is not revelation, but reliant on earlier accounts, the question becomes, what kind of earlier accounts? Are these oral histories or written accounts? Well, verbal transmission makes the accuracy suspect, so they should be seen as written histories. For Ostrak, the texts are too detailed and complex, with various topographic details and genealogical lists that they couldn't possibly be remembered if they were only passed down orally. Now let me pause and say, I don't think oral histories are that much of an issue. As more work has been done on oral cultures by anthropologists, the accuracy of transmission has been shown to be very high. So most Western thinkers privilege the written record above the oral one, but this kind of bias hasn't really held up when closely examined. We are so used to reading and writing that we haven't built up our verbal memory skills, but those people who are in oral cultures definitely have and they can do shocking things. I mean, it is common for Muslims to memorize the entire Quran in Arabic and be able to recite it front to back. I also had a conversation with a couple Jewish friends in Israel who flipped into Hebrew to recite lengthy passages of the Talmud in response to a theological question I had, which I asked in English. But shockingly, they could just quote the responses of these rabbis in the Hebrew and with all of their names in order, Rabbi Shimei or Hillel. I don't remember all the details. Clearly, my verbal recall is poor. So, since oral history is suspect for Astruc, Moses must have relied on early writings. He interacts with the arguments of Leclerc and Simon here and claims, quote, Moses had access to old accounts which contained the history of his ancestors, beginning with the creation of the world, that in order not to omit anything, he divided these reports into pieces according to the incidents described therein, that he collected all the pieces together one after the other, and that the first book of Moses originated from all these pieces. End quote. Do you see what he is doing here? These pieces of text sound a lot like the issue that Simon and Leclerc were battling with. Simon claimed a long transmission history where the text was edited by scribes and prophets, or prophets who were also known as scribes, and Leclerc claimed that one priest, around the time of the exile, compiled all the writing together. Now, Ostrich is claiming that the sources were earlier than Moses and were compiled by Moses, at least for Genesis. His evidence is going to sound very familiar to anyone who has followed the earlier episodes. So, first, the repetition of the same events shows that there's multiple texts he's dealing with. Two, the alternation between Elohim and Yahweh, what Ostrak would have translated as Jehovah for God. Now, let me pause. I want to admit here that most scholars acknowledge H.B. Witter talking about this interchange between Yahweh and Elohim in 1711 
as predating Ostruck. However, it is pretty certain that Ostruck was not familiar with him, and honestly, Witter's work was lost until the early 1900s. I am not dealing with Witter because the information on him is pretty limited. I only saw two or three articles about him, and his contribution to wider scholarship at the time also seems to be pretty limited. And I mean, at the time of his writing, his actual influence. So I just want to acknowledge that he did exist and did talk about this before Ostruck, but it was pretty well buried and he didn't seem to go as deep into detail as Jean Ostruck. But back to Ostruck. His evidence for Moses using multiple sources is 1. The repetition of the same events. 2. The alternation between Elohim and Yahweh for God. 3. The lack of this alternation in the other books of the Pentateuch because Moses wrote those himself rather than relying on other accounts. And four, the anachronisms in the accounts. Now, the third one probably sounds like an outlier. Nobody else has been arguing that Exodus through Deuteronomy lacks the alternation between Yahweh and Elohim. I will come back to this later because I want to first deal with his description of Genesis. And he details the sources in ways we haven't really seen before, and that's really his important contribution. But I will talk about what he has to say about the other texts as well. So, Ostrich made a basic four-part division of the text. He took all the accounts that used the name Elohim and put them together as source A. He actually put these into columns, so they would have been column A. Then all the text that use Yahweh, not Elohim, but Yahweh, were put together as source B. He then put all the texts that don't use Elohim or Yahweh, but deal with the Hebrew nation, into another source, source C. Finally, texts that don't use Elohim or Yahweh, and don't deal directly with the Hebrew nation, are source D. These ones deal with the histories or genealogies of other nations. So Astra claims that this last column, the column D, is probably a bunch of different accounts and not a single source. But he claims he doesn't want to get bogged down into these details, though he later posits that they could be divided into at least 10 separate sources. Maybe more, maybe less, but he thinks about 10. That makes some sense if you follow his logic, though. The first two categories have a unifying feature, which is the word for God. The third category has a unifying feature of focusing on the Hebrew people. But the fourth category is really just the stories that don't contain any features of the other three. So each of these stories in this category could just be from a separate source altogether, like the history of the Edomite people, the history of the Ammonite people, the histories of the Moabite peoples. Nothing is to say that those histories were combined pre-Moses, right? So, Ostruck imagined that Moses had all these sources side by side in columns. Ostruck labels them ABCD. 
These columns help to explain the repetitions and anachronisms in the text because they are combined from a variety of sources. It also exonerates Moses from any culpability for errors or negligence because it was part of the scribes who were negligent in combining the columns together for Moses' text. So Moses had them in columns, and then they just merged these four columns together. So this way, Moses compiled the sources, but scribes combined them into the present text, and some issues in the combinations of these sources arose, but this maintains Moses' authorship, or at least compiling and translating, and his truthfulness in reporting, because he didn't introduce the errors, he saw them as separate texts. Now, Ostruck also tried to anticipate some objections. He does hold to the sources somewhat loosely and believes that they could be subdivided further, but it is kind of speculative. For example, there could have been multiple sources using the name Elohim in just, instead of just one source A. There could be two, three, or more that share that feature. So you'd have A prime, A double prime, however you want to label it, A1, A2, A3. The point being that those don't necessarily have to all be one unified source. But we don't know. He also claims that writing before Moses is assumed, even within the text, though this is in response to a claim that there wasn't writing before Moses, which really doesn't hold much weight today. But this was a theory in Ostrich's day. So if you're wondering why he has to make that argument, it's not something commonly argued today that nobody wrote before Moses wrote. He also explains that Exodus 6 claimed, quote, to the patriarchs, I was known as El Shaddai, but not Yahweh, end quote. That's how Exodus 6 states it. It didn't mean that they didn't know the name Yahweh at all, but that it wasn't fully understood by them, though they fully understood the meaning of El Shaddai. He also argues that most of the sources were in Hebrew, because it was the language of Canaan and Abraham. But some of the sources, especially those outside of the Hebrew people, were translated into Hebrew by Moses. So Ostrak also argues against Simon Leclerc, Spinoza, Laprere, and Hobbes in defense of his idea. He claims that all of these complete denials and late authorship ideas cannot work. How would these later authors have access to all these early reports, and what evidence do we have that it came so late? Plus, the New Testament calls them the writings of Moses, so we should take them as such if we take the New Testament at its word. So, the last thing I want to go into is the difference between Genesis through Exodus 2 and the rest of the Pentateuch. Like I said earlier, most of the scholars were claiming that the whole Pentateuch was composite and late, but Astrak believed that only the first book is composite. If you're familiar with the books of Moses, you're probably wondering how he's claiming that they are so dramatically different stylistically. I mean, all the books use Elohim and Yahweh at various times. 
So Ostruck recognizes this, but then also claims that they're used differently. In Genesis, whole chapters or other large sections use one word or the other. However, in the rest of the Pentateuch, these terms are mixed together. He believes that Moses prefers Yahweh, but uses Elohim for stylistic purposes occasionally. Since large chunks in the first book use only one term, they must be from sources that prefer or know only that term. However, Moses, writing later, knows both terms and uses them interchangeably. The items that Moses penned himself don't have prolonged use of any one title, so they must not be thought of as composite, but as Moses writing in his own style and using both of the terms that he is familiar with. Also, the repetitions found in Exodus through Deuteronomy are not from different sources, but pedagogical necessities. In other words, Moses repeated laws and events in these sections to teach the people and reinforce God's command. So it's a stylistic tool, not an indication of separate sources. Also, some of the events and changes in name that are recorded in Exodus through Deuteronomy were added by scribes. So the main text was written by Moses, but sometimes place names or other information was updated so that people later could understand it. He actually points to Homer and the updates and edits that took place in his Greek writings and says that it should be expected even for Moses' writings. So I do want to end by letting you know there is an English edition that was published in 1999 by Pierre Gibbert. If you want the full text of what Ostruck was writing, it is much more detailed than what I have given and what I could give. And some of the arguments are a little out of date with what we would consider convincing, but it's at least interesting and a huge step forward from the previous arguments. So I do hope that you can see the movement of Old Testament scholarship happening. Some of the scholars make some vague claims about miracles in the Old Testament. Others push back with a more traditional view. Still, others have this middle ground where they take some skepticism to the history, but then accept the text overall is reliable, or at least moral. And then you have Jean Ostrug really nailing down the details. Whereas others have made sweeping claims or just kicked the authorship to later dates, Astra calls them to consider their reasoning. Are all the books of the Pentateuch really the same composite style? And even if some of it is composite, why does this have to be late? Doesn't it make more sense to have someone closer to the events write about it than a scribe hundreds of years later have access to all these ancient documents somehow? This back and forth is still how scholarship happens. The pendulum swings and hopefully thought is refined in the process. I am not entirely convinced that scholarship is really moving forward or into new and better understandings, but it is definitely moving. What was convincing 10 years ago is no longer solid now, and Ostrich really put the pressure on some of these early critics. I think he is right in that sense. 
If you're going to make big claims, you need to have detailed evidence. And like Ostrich, you need to address the problems with the views that came before you and perhaps try to anticipate objections. If you can't tell, I really like his style. He moves from the kind of freewheeling renaissance and medieval thought to a much more reserved and thorough modern argument. So that is where I will leave us today. Jean Ostrich tributed the entire Pentateuch to Moses, but claimed that he compiled Genesis from earlier written sources and wrote the rest of the Pentateuch from his own experience. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen right now, and tune in in two weeks for Johann Jakob Rambach. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. If you would like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about the Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at Modern Old Testament Studies at gmail.com. And again, thanks for listening.